Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast Tour de France edition. Rest day. Rest day today. Clearly no Tour de France racing to talk about, but the Giro Donne did have a time trial today, and we still got a bunch of good content. So before we dive into all that, I'm Abby Mickey. I'm here with Dane Cash. Hello. Hello. You thought that you thought you had the day off. You don't. It's okay. Kaylee's not here. We gotta pick up the slack. <laughs> and Ronan McLaughlin. Ronan. What about you? Hey. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> don't know what you just said. Apparently, a lot of people on the YouTube videos don't know what I said as well. So I thought mm. I would take a rest day from my international accent and just use my own accent the way I normally speak at home. Well, never read the comments, but we'll get to that later. Before we dive into all of our great stuff today, which includes a chat with Matthew Vanderpool's coach and Matt Deneef and Ben O'Connor talking Australian, this episode is brought to you by Continental. We know that Cycling Tips is all about road cycling with some gravel for good measure, and we've talked about Continental's road gravel and even urban tires quite a bit. But those are only part of Conti's bicycle tire range. Yep, we're talking about mountain bike tires today. Continental's German handmade mountain bike tires are built for every style from cross country to full downhill. It won't come as a surprise to regular listeners that their mountain bike tires also use Conti's famous black chili compound. But did you know that Conti mountain bike tires biotech from their car tires? Apex stabilizes the tire in turns reduces puncture risk, and keeps the tires on your rims. It's a technology that makes sense for high-volume bicycle tires. So when you're kitting out your mountain bike, make sure to check out Continental's range of mountain bike tires. And thank you so much to Continental for sponsoring this episode. Okay, after Ben O'Connor won the stage of the Tour de France yesterday, Matt Deneef called him up to chat about it. So before we dive into anything else, let's hear what Ben had to say. Send yeah. Obviously, I think everyone's a bit cooked. Yeah. <laughs> everyone's pretty glad for the rest day. Yeah. And uh, so am I. So, gonna just try and enjoy it as much as possible and uh, not think too much if possible as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you guys are out for a cruisy ride this morning then? Yeah, just cruise down the valleys there, I think, and see the scenes, see the mountains. Yeah. Uh, the last time I was there, I was actually skiing with my family and some friends and stuff. So it'd be nice to look at it again in summer. <laughs> yeah. Has it sunk in yet, what you were able to achieve yesterday? I think so. I think. Um, I mean, I know it's the, the top and there's nothing really else more I can I can uh, dream of like that. It's, it's, it's rare and it's something that I might not be able to ever do again. So... Yeah, I feel I actually feel relaxed um, and almost soft. Uh, it's not as if there was a weight, but uh, as in you've realised something, and, and and now you can. No, you you, you don't relax, mm. but uh, you don't have to. You don't feel like you're then chasing anything else, um, which is kind of great for the next two weeks, or week and a bit. Yeah. Because you're just going with a free spirit and, you know, do your best every single day. Um, 
because yeah, I never, I always wanted to win a stage, and I knew I could coming into the Tour of France, but it's pretty unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> so the fact it came out yesterday, especially with the way the day was, um, pretty filthy. Uh, yeah. It's pretty stunning. How long would you say it's been a goal of yours to win a stage of the Tour? Um, actually, not very long. It was first just starting the Tour de France. Yeah. That was always just the dream in the first place. To go f- to think further than that was, it would only be realistic got to the Tour. I kind of think a lot of the time short, kind of turnish. Um, yeah. So I never have these crazy aspirations and like lots of people asking me yesterday, you think about yellow jersey, are you disappointed? I was like, no, I couldn't, like, I, it wasn't up to me to decide and I... <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about that at all. You had a stage win in your hands. And it was about enjoying that. Yeah. <laughs> Not worrying about something else. Absolutely. You said you came into the tour feeling confident that you, you could win a stage. But when when did you start to believe that? When did you start to think that you had the ability to do that? Um, I mean, the way Dauphiné went, I for sure knew go into the tour with an aggressive mindset I want to make the most of like you know a jump from a from from the GC group yeah and win stage like that um and then yeah on the first day here in Tour de France I thought I was out for sure mm-hmm. uh, so I broke my my shoulder or my um scapula and yeah it was just a really bad muscle bruising thing going on um so yeah it kind of it took my my hopes and kind of it uh it hurt. But then we did this that super long two hundred and fifty K stage and I felt better. Yeah. Um again. And then I believed it and was ready um to to try, but I didn't think it would be yesterday. Yeah. Although I knew the break I thought the break was gonna win, but I didn't think I was gonna do it because I thought it was too risky. But in the end <laughs> the risk pays off sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I find myself in a really nice position now. <laughs> yeah, not only you got the stage win, but obviously second on GC with that really nice buffer over a lot of the GC guys. I assume you guys have talked about a GC possible GC tilt from here? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I was always actually going to try and I wanted to see if I get to the top 10 by the end of Paris, the way that this race has been, because it's been madness. It's time gets ridiculous mm-hmm. the crashes and the stress and it's been you know it's a course that i didn't when i first saw it i think a lot of guys didn't think it'd be as hard as it has been yeah um but it's been super hard so yeah uh yeah for sure you look at it now um but you know there's no stress i'm not worried that i i'm not panicking maybe Vincent. There's a uh, stressing. I mean, I know it is stressing, but <laughs> for me personally, it doesn't. It doesn't affect me because you know you go to Vontuf and you do your best climb you can, and that's kind of all you can do. So, yeah. I never came to the tour wanting to. Well, I'm sure you always want to do as best as you can, but I never dreamt of being on the podium or ever being second overall. So, yeah, you just relish it. Yeah. What do you think will be the key stages from here on out? You mentioned Von 2. What else? Yeah, Von 2 and the Andorra stage. Um, Andorra stage is super hard. Um, mm-hmm. And if you blow on the climb base list, it's pretty 
it's not so nice it's really steep and uh, you can lose some time there but on to about for sure will be I think the the biggest of them all only if, I mean obviously any of the Pyrenean stages uh, but Vontaine in particular I think um, yeah. maybe just because it's the closest thing and I just think kind of day by day there's mm. also always danger and when you go between Nimes and Carcassonne it's windy around there um, and can be tricky but uh, yeah it's just a point of doing your best every day hey like uh, yeah Vontu is the closest thing to think about. <laughs> yeah, I know you're thinking day by day, but do you do you feel like you're confident that you can be on the podium come Paris, or are you just not even thinking about that at the moment? Uh, I haven't dreamt or thought about. I haven't like envisaged envisaged it. So envisaged, jeez. Um, I've like, but I know that with the guys that are there, we're all kind of on a similar level. Mm. Carapaz is looking super strong. But everyone else is the guys I've raced with in Romandie and Dauphiné. Yeah, we're all kind of more or less the same <laughs> on our on our on our days. Um, for sure, some guys will do better one day and not on the other day. But you know, you you're in the ballpark, mm-hmm. and the fact that you have this lead really does uh, give you such a nice buffer yeah. in case you do have a bad day. Because I might have a great day then when we get to Andorra or in the Pyrenees. Um, so yeah it's it's just a really nice feeling that you, you that they kind of have to chase you and I, I just don't need to I'm not panicking maybe it seems a bit more stressful than chasing you but once again I found myself in a position I didn't really think of so there shouldn't be a stressor for it yeah so do you just go into it and just try and defend that position like I guess what I mean is you've made a name for yourself by being an aggressive rider and and getting ahead by attacking do you now just sit back and go well it's up to you guys now yeah for sure I mean uh, I'm not going to be following today when he goes that's for sure (laughs) I mean you can't first of all and then secondly you're going to be struggling but uh, the other guys yeah it's a it's a matter of of following and you know, I've, I've grabbed the stage win by being super aggressive. You don't need to then, you know, hunt and search for more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now is about being super smart and dieseling your way as much as possible mm-hmm. um, and making sure that when they do look at each other and they're all like, oh, who's going to ride? And you you just keep, you keep going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're always going to be with other guys. Everyone's got their own intention, whether it's, eighth or sixth or third yeah. you know <laughs> everyone fights for this so you're always going to find allies and you're always going to find opponents <laughs> yeah if you get left by yourself so that's the main thing actually don't get left by yourself <laughs> yeah that's right yeah do you think the team will rally around you now ah for sure yeah. um i think vincent he's been in this position before with roman and uh he'll be pretty keen to try and keep it. And I think there's no reason why not to try yeah. and go all in and, and give it a go. It's, once again, not often you can find yourself in this position. So in the biggest race in the world, put yourself at the front of a race. It looks great for everyone, not yeah. just me, not just my teammates, but also for all the sponsors and all the staff and brings uh, courage and hope to, to, I guess, everyone in the team, hey? A lot of people back home in Australia as well. I know there's a lot of people up late last night watching the race. They were <laughs> well stoked. Yeah, 
it's uh it's a bit crazy my, my brothers and sisters have been doing like interviews yeah. with my mates just just like my best mate at home he's even living in Aspen he's on tv you like just don't understand but <laughs> it's funny it's uh it's kind of funny <laughs> yeah i'll enjoy it laugh. as you say you don't get to be in this position very often so lap up every second of it i reckon yeah and i'm gonna try and chill as much today as i can yeah thinking about it too awesome all right i'll let you go i know you've got a busy day but i really appreciate you making time to have a chat ben thanks so much no no worries man cheers uh have a good one yeah you too enjoy the day and enjoy the next few weeks Thanks, man. See ya. Bye. One of the biggest pieces of news yesterday that we actually didn't mention on the podcast was that Matthew Vanderpool did not start stage nine. Pretty great Tour de France, though, for him. Yeah, I'd say he did okay in his debut. First ever Tour de France went okay. Yeah, I think for his team, which, you know, is pro-continental pro tour pro team is a pro i like that you said pro-continental it's so in our it's in our it's on our brains now <laughs> oh, no. that we say continental not continental oh, no. so there's no such thing as a pro first of all there is no such thing as a pro-continental team anymore but yeah they, they changed the Second names on me team. and i actually it, uh, it only clicked in a, like a week ago that they're no no longer world tour teams they're world teams World teams, but nobody calls no. them that. Anyway, you know, not on a yeah. world team, but Matthew Vanderpool potentially had one of the best Tour de France's of anybody in the race, minus Pogachar. And Dane Cash, you chatted with his coach. I did. Uh, Christophe de Kegel, the uh, performance director over at Alpes and Phoenix, which, as you said, has had a really nice run. I mean, if you look at the way that most second division teams tend to perform in the Grand Tours, it's usually a lot of getting into breakaways and TV time without a whole lot of actual results. But the team won two stages of the tour. Matthew Vanderpool wore the yellow jersey for several days. So they had a great tour. Uh, so Christoph de Cahill must know what he's doing. And uh, had, some, had some pretty interesting insight about Vanderpool himself and what makes him different from other riders, which we know he is pretty different from other riders. All right. Well, let's hear your chat. Moving, you know, kind of into the, this year and, and this tour, what what was different about the buildup, uh, maybe for this season generally, and, and then and then also this kind of past month or so as he was building towards both the tour and then also, obviously, the Olympics are coming up right after that. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, the buildup was not that different from uh, from the other years. Uh, what is very important for Matthew is that uh, uh, we give him some kind of different task some kind of different goals because he liked that he liked it to be on different bikes having different goals and then trying to mix that as much as possible and even this year with the, with the tour in the olympics we also tried that our last preparation towards this tour um was we, we had a, we had a very good altitude camp and also on that altitude camp towards the tour uh let's say one month ago we also mixed mountain biking and mixed uh, road cycling uh, because that just motivates him and, and and we also believe for him it's very easy to make the transfer from one bike to another so that way we also believe that it is just some kind of extra uh, on the physical side um, that makes him that strong 
and and is it the same in training? Is he also training on the cross bike and the mountain bike and the road bike roughly all around the same time? You know, even when it's not the normal season for those things. Yeah, for sure. Of course, there is always a bit of uh, a structure where where one bike is is for sure more there than another. Um, but anyway, we we mix we mix those uh, those things uh, a bit through through the year. Um, and and yeah, that's that's what makes him uh, makes him that strong. Just uh, that adaptability uh, towards all those uh, things, positions. That's also the reason why he just made the the transition to the TT bike yesterday quite smooth. Um, so yeah, that that being not even on the poop. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. What, down that same kind of uh, vein, uh, what makes him different? physiologically from the other riders that you've worked with what surprises me always uh, the most is his really his adaptability uh he is just his body is so far uh we have some standards and we have some theories uh which we all know uh, from from out of the sports science listen the base buildup has to be so much weeks and then when that is okay you have you need that time to build up some intensity and then the rider will be good and then we need a bit of taper. With Matthew, it's all way shorter. So his body just adapts way quicker to, to this, the, the stimuli that, uh, that we give his body. That is, that is, that is the big difference. Also on the recovery side, he can be, the, he can be dead, uh, now and then one, one night's sleep and then you have a new one. <laughs> right. So and and when he takes a break, it takes him less time to get back into shape. Yes, uh, but if I'm really honest, we we always go for quite short breaks because we don't. Yeah, we we have so much different types of goals, and uh, from out of our experience and also from what Matthew uh, likes the most, we don't go for really long breaks. We we don't want to go completely downgrade the the physical. Uh, uh, status of his body so we just have very very regular short breaks let's say for maximum one week during the season how does his uh, adaptability kind of change the way that you build his training plans compared to say well any other rider really yeah it's just a learning process together uh, with the team athlete coach relationship you you have come some kind of yeah you learn from each other. I give my input from the sports science view, and then you have, of course, his input uh, from out of the experience. And we have also Christoph Rotov and the team who knows already Mathieu for a very, very long time. So all we just put all those experiences together, and uh, that way we try to make uh, to make the best possible plan. And from my point of view, I just learned from three years of working with Mathieu, you have to, yeah, we had to upgrade uh, the plans a bit because of his high adaptability. Right. Yeah. Uh, how much input does he like to have in the training? Is, does he kind of say, you know, whatever you say goes, or is, or is he very vocal about his own kind of uh, input in, in, in the training plans? Well, he uh, he just follows uh, the training plans and the regime that is written down, but he uh, he also has a very good uh, he has very good sensations and experience 
on uh, how his own body needs to feel or needs to react on stimuli. And he's very good in just, uh, yeah, translating that to me in, 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 yeah, in, a, in, a, in a good uh, it, it's always very important as an athlete that you can really t- communicate with your coach and try to tell him what you exactly feel. That is very, very difficult, but Patrick is really good in that. Um, one, one, one simple example there is that he can ride perfectly without a power meter. If you ask him to do intervals of 400 watts, whatever, and just take his power meter off, I'm pretty sure that he will uh, never be further off than seven eight watts wow <laughs> he just knows what that is, 4,800 watts yeah, is he just knows that but that is very very important that an athlete has of course there is a lot of sports science and we do a lot and we have a lot of input but the feeling that an athlete can translate uh, towards his coach and towards his own body very important so we didn't get a ton of wattage numbers out of the interview, which is not surprising. Pros aren't really in the habit of handing out their watt numbers, but a couple of the things that stood out from Dane's interview were that his coach can tell him to ride 400 watts, and without looking at a power meter, Matthew Vanderpool can ride 400 watts. That is, that is, that is pretty impressive. Like, it's... It's one of those things that we hear so often nowadays that, you know, writers are slaves to the numbers. Uh, and I think we actually quite often see that where, you know, writers can get to a very high level uh, and can perform when they've got a number in front of them on the screen. But, you know, should something go wrong on a day or should they be on a super day or, or a really bad day and the number on the screen isn't necessarily what they're capable of that day, um, then we can see things sort of, you know, just not go as plan as as to plan as as they could have done otherwise, and that that I think that comes down to, you know, just just living by the numbers on a daily basis. And you know, myself, you know, with a little bit of coaching, I do I, I quite often tell writers to put head units into their pocket and just write off a of field because having that understanding is actually hugely important. And just you know, in terms of the best example I can think of is just in terms of of pacing. Um, if if you're you know dependent on a number in front of you on the screen you're only ever going to do the very best you're ever going to do is that number that you can you can see right in front of you and I think it was Tom Dumoulin who said after the time trial world championships in Bergen Norway that that he had won uh, that had he gone off what the parameter said that day he wouldn't have won because he would have went easier uh, and he was actually capable of much much more that day but he had this feeling he had this understanding that I can push harder today I'm on a good day and you can only really get that if you understand your your body well and have a good, you know, uh, understanding of the sensations that you're getting on the bike. And clearly, Matthew Van Der Poel has that. If he can go out and, uh, you know, right, aim for 400 watts and be within what I think it was seven watts. The coach said he could he could hit. He, he didn't he yeah, didn't say if he was yeah. asking Van Der Poel to ride at 400 watts for a minute, an hour, or 24 hours, but he probably could do it for all three of those durations. <laughs> but um, you know, just. To be able to do that, it might not sound like all that much, but um, it is actually, you know, a, a very unique skill uh, to be able to pace something like that, and it shows an understanding that usually only writers much older have of of their bodies. Like for you know, Matthew Vanderpool has been around for what seems like an age. He has three 
cycle or more cyclocross world championships maybe he has his countless wins in nearly every discipline but he is still quite young uh so to have that sort of understanding is that that like of of the interview there obviously we heard about he did 551 watts on the the murder britannia for five minutes which is just absolutely insane as well and um, but i was more impressed with the fact that you know he just understands himself so well he can go out and hit a number without even without even looking at it like and um yeah just you know i, I, I suppose we probably should talk about someone who can do 551 watts for five minutes at the end of the second stage of the tour de france haven't already gone on the attack on the same climb just what 16 kilometers earlier and been able to repeat that effort yeah just well um we 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 didn't really need this interview to understand that matthew vanderpool is some sort of insane animal but <laughs> just to actually get the information and the and the, the data on it just yeah um it's a uh, pretty pretty out of this world what, what he could do there of course we I don't think we got his weight did we uh no not in the interview mm, so you know we but he's not a he's not a He's a tall guy, but he's not a, a big guy, so it's going to be some, some big part of it. He also, I mean, kind of more down that same path of his ability to ride without the power meter. Um, Christopher Cale was talking about how, uh, kind of how uh, good of a communicator he is with his coach. And I, we again, we kind of can just deduce that he's like physically just unbelievable. He's on another level. I mean, he's just so far ahead of, of most of the other riders in the peloton. But the ability to... Kind of culture, uh, cultivate those those um, physical gifts. Uh, that's something that I don't know that we often hear much about with riders. But uh, the, the ability to kind of ride without the power meter and, and still be kind of on his numbers and and to communicate his um, how he's feeling and how well he's responding to his training. I mean, those are really important skills that maybe I don't, that they probably don't come easy to a lot of people. Uh, and I and I think for for Vanderpool. Like everything else, they apparently do come easy, and it's a really important aspect that probably we, we wouldn't otherwise think about, or or certainly not see. Um, you know, the the conversations that he's having with his trainer and how they impact his ability to kind of get better constantly over time in four different disciplines. And yeah, I think his his ability to communicate so well with his coach also has to do with the level of confidence he probably has, because I think the fact that he is able to openly tell his coach how he's feeling and, and how he's responding to training is tied directly with with confidence in himself. I, another thing that I found really interesting about the interview, and obviously being Matthew Vanderpool, he competes in multiple disciplines, but that they switch it up based on, you know, he was getting ready for the Tour de France, but he was still riding his mountain bike and and everything. And of course, he's doing the mountain bike race at the Olympics, but I think so often world tour riders and, and even juniors and any level just get sucked into riding one bike. And it's so important to have the skills that comes from multiple different disciplines. And Matthew Vanderpool is, is a really great example of that. It seems to be, I mean, the, the Christoph Takeda was saying that it's, it's a motivating thing for him. I mean, he, he likes that. He wants to do that, which is Maybe, you know, I don't know that everybody, uh, every rider would necessarily get those freedoms. Uh, but with with Matthew Vanderpool, it's like, well, he's he's going to go contend for a gold medal at Tokyo. So we should probably let him ride his mountain bike every now and then. And also that cyclocross bike that he's won three world titles on. Uh, but the fact that it for him, it like helps him, you know, stay in the game. It, it, it's, it's what he wants to be doing uh, is it, it's kind of it's natural. Yeah. Let, let him ride his mountain bike. Let him ride his cross bike. If it want, if that's what he wants to be doing, it, it kind of keeps him motivated. It's obvious that that's what he should be doing. 
there's riders that during the off season they they still want to ride a bike but they don't want to touch a road bike and they only want to ride a mountain bike and I feel like for those riders they would probably have a much better season if once a week or however often they wanted to they were allowed to go mess around on their mountain bike instead of doing a super structured road ride I, th- I think we did go through a period over the last 10 or 15 years where you know training and has become so scientific and, and so dialed with all the different you know technology that's come to the fore over, over that time uh, and we did for a while see everything go you know super structured and you know everything was down to the second and it, you know everything was being weighed and you know riders that they had three hours to do it felt like a disaster if they did two hours and 59 uh, so I think it's really good to now hear that someone as successful as Vanderpool uh, and we've got other riders as well like Tom Pitcock and not to the same extent but White Van Aert does ride cyclocross in the winter and it still goes pretty well on the road bike during the season um, so, you know so for you know for young riders especially to hear that you can be successful without so much structure and without you know um, having to have everything absolutely perfectly dialed I think is is really important message to to get out there as well that the the most important thing about cycling is having fun rather than training perfectly uh, and and that quite often gets lost for a lot of riders and myself included in the past that you get so focused on trying to um achieve the the, the perfect training uh week or whatever it might be that you lose sight of the fact that you know being good enough is is already better than what most people get a chance to do like so uh, I think that's an, important to get out there that having fun and enjoying your time is worth probably you know an immeasurable amount more than having a perfect training week or perfect training plan which doesn't really exist you know every, everybody's different and and no coach no matter if you're Vanderpool's coach or a coach at you know a local cycling club or something nobody has this perfect recipe of x plus y equals perfect form on on the day you want to be at your best it's it's, it's always a, a sort of a bit of a guessing game it's just some people can make better guesses than others i think before we move on to the giradone the rest day always produces some pretty interesting interviews a couple of them came from the uae team and their response to the media speculating about how good the team actually is that's backing up pogacar so Ronan mentioned <laughs> reading the comments. <laughs> Form da, Davide Formolo and uh, Tata P- Pogacar are clearly reading reading the media. Yeah, it's so it's it's the cycling version of never read the comments if you don't want to. But in this case, it's sort of like they're clearly motivated by it. I mean, Pogacar said after stage nine that he you know he he wants to show people, and I mean they did a pretty good job on stage nine the UAE team. Uh, of of riding that to high tempo and and helping drop some riders, but uh, I don't know. It's I don't really know what they expect us to say. They're clearly they're not as strong as the as Yumbo or, or the Ineos Grenadiers. You know, they may be the third, fourth, fifth best team in the race, uh, but but uh, I, I don't think we can call them the best team in the race. But hey, if they're going to use it to motivate themselves, I mean, it works for Michael Jordan to take every single thing in life as a slight. So it it maybe it'll work for for Tade and his team. Uh, and it certainly did seem to be, it does seem to be on their mind because Formolo and, and uh, Pogacar both have, have talked about it in interviews, how they want to, uh, you know, they want to show people we're not weak. And uh, I don't I don't know. I don't know if any of us have said they were ever like really, really bad. It's not like they're a bad team. Uh, but hey, whatever gets you motivated, 
uh, hard to blame them, and and it appears to be working, taking that motivation. Yeah, like certainly on paper, they're by no means a, a weak team. Looking looking through the start list, I don't think there is a single writer in there it it writer lineup that you wouldn't have picked for the Tour de France, or I don't think there's a, a writer there that wouldn't uh, slip into almost any other team at the Tour. Uh, but in terms of you know writing and Riding in in uh, support of a leader, riding in defence of of a jersey, uh, and and riding as a single unit, they certainly don't have as much experience as other teams do, and we have seen, you know, a, a number of incidents so far in the tour that um, perhaps just fall down to a little bit of an experience in, in riding in that manner, and you know, thinking specifically just about a, a couple of crashes as well that, um, you know, there was a there was a two or th- I think I know Mark Mark Hishry, you know completely not his fault nothing they could do about that uh, and he picked up one of the worst injuries out of it but we've seen UAE riders caught up in a couple of other crashes since then that um, perhaps could have were, were avoidable and, and that you know is perhaps uh, partly down to an, an experience of being in this position of course last year they won the Tour de France but they didn't have to ride until uh, they got to the Champs-Élysées uh, so very different story this year riding uh you know, for one of the race favorites, the defending champion, and and having to be on, on the offensive, so to speak, right from the very first stage, as opposed to last year, sort of, just chilling them behind Yombo Visma and letting them do the, do the majority of the work. Is this the first time we've heard Pogacar sort of say anything other than something really nice? <laughs> I don't think I can't recall him ever uh, taking taking a, a hit back at a question. In a way. He's being nice just to somebody else. He's he's making sure we are being nice to his teammates. So he's still he's still trying to, to, to keep things nice. Giordane, before we talk about tomorrow's stage at the Tour de France, just a really quick recap on Giordane. Today was stage four. It was a 11.2 kilometer uphill time trial. Not super steep, just like a pretty gradual 11.2 kilometers up a hill. Um, no surprise at all. It was won by Anna Vanderbregen. Dane predicted it yesterday, along with the rest of the world. If you want an interesting race, don't put a TTT on stage one and an uphill time trial on stage four and then invite Anna Vanderbregen or any of the SD Works riders, really. And a mountaintop finish on stage two? Yeah, I, don't, I just don't. I mean, but hey, good for Anna Vanderbregen just like dominating this race and her whole team uh, doing so. Another as SD works one, two on, on stage four, right? Yeah. Thank goodness. Grace Brown got in there to break up the one, two, three for SD works and slotted in for third. She set a provisional fastest time and she sat in the hot seat for a really long time before, um, Demi Vollering and Anna Vanderbregen finished and Ashley Lampasio finished fourth. Marta Cavalli with another really impressive ride today, as she did on stage two, finished only a minute and 54 down. She's riding so well right now up hills. Um, it's really a bummer that her team had such a horrendous team time trial. But in the general classification, Anna Vanderbregen, Ashley Lampasio, and Demi Vollering are sitting one, two, three still. And now Anna Vanderbregen is winning by almost three minutes over her teammate. The closest non-SD Works rider is El- is Elizabeth. Is Lizzie Dagnan in fourth for Truck Segafredo? Five minutes and fifty-three seconds down. <laughs> So, if we thought the Tour de France was over, the Giordone is, uh, barring disaster, is is over at this point. It's it's stage wins. And Anna Vanderbregen said in her post-race interview that 
they're they're going to go for the stage wins as well, of course, with Chantel Vanderbrook Black and uh, Elena Cicchini. But for sure, Trek Segafredo, Kane Stram, they'll be really hungry for some stage wins. I wish I could say that this dominance has something to do with the fact that the race isn't World Tour anymore, so a bunch of people are missing it. But it's really just Cash and Iwadoma and Anamik that are missing it, and I don't see Kasha factoring in the GC at this point. With the climb on stage two, she's an incredible rider, and I think she would have done well today in the time trial, but in that kind of massive mountaintop climb, it's not her strongest. Anamik would have been the only one who could have challenged Vanderbregen at this point, but based on how she's been riding this year, I think that regardless of who was at the race, this was the outcome we were going to have. Anamik just maybe would have broken up the SD Works trio. I have to hand it to SD Works because, you know, last year, at the end of the year, you might have said, well, Demi Vollering and uh, Ashley Moomin Passio, those are the riders who could take on Vanderbregen on a course like this. And so SD Works says, okay, let's just sign them. And then we won't have to worry about that. We'll yeah. take them. And now we'll beat everybody. Okay, and they just keep they keep picking up the best riders. You know, there was a period where it was Anna Vanderbregen and several good riders around her. Uh, but they've they've done a really nice job of kind of reinforcing that squad with her kind of retirement on the horizon. Yeah, and kind of in that same conversation, you know, they were beat by a couple people in in the classics in the spring, and so they were like, "Cool, we'll just pick up a lot of Kapeki." Yep, worked out pretty well. <laughs> Has worked out pretty well. So yeah, real quick, let's hear from Ruth Winder about the time trial today. Hey everybody! Uh, stage four of Giro today was a uphill time trial, classic Giro fashion. Um, for me personally, I didn't really need to do anything. GC game for me is not something I'm looking for, but our two speedies, um, Lizzie and Elisa, were putting their best effort, and they came. I think um, maybe 8th and 10th or 7th and 10th. I'm not really sure uh, exact final final um, results, I guess, that they got on the day. But I know Lizzie was pretty happy with her time trial. Eliza maybe a little bit disappointed. She's just not really quite got the legs that she was hoping to have with this Giro, um, which has been pretty hard. You know, she's done a lot of really... Um, focused preparation for this race and it's just not quite come together uh, which is it's definitely disappointing for her but she's super positive still and we're and still doing her best and that's all we can really ask for as a team Um, so yeah that was the time trial day Um, nothing too excited from us super impressive ride by Fanta Bregan again Um, really I got to see her coming up when I was descending and she just looks so smooth and elegant on a bike it's crazy um, but yeah, so congratulations to her and the, uh, I almost said DSM, not DSM. My b- brain is blanking right now. Um, SD works team, uh, again for the really strong rides. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's my day. Um, we're back at the same hotel we were two days ago and we had really delicious lasagna for dinner then. So I'm really hoping we get lasagna again because I think the race organization just tells every hotel to give us plain pasta and plain rice and a flattened chicken breast for dinner and maybe if you're lucky you get some overcooked broccoli so when we came here the other day and we had lasagna it was just like whoa what is happening what a treat so here's to hoping we have something exciting for dinner okay over now 
The Giordana continues with stage five. It's a pancake flat race, although before stage three, the route was changed. So who knows what it's going to be tomorrow. Um, but it looks flat, so we're anticipating a sprint finish. There's a bunch of really good sprinters there. Emma Norsgaard, not a pure sprinter, but I think among this field is definitely up there. Lorena Wiebes, who is pretty much nearly undefeated in sprints this season, is a favorite for tomorrow, So, or is a favorite for Tuesday. So we will talk about stage five uh, on Tuesday. <laughs> Back to our regularly, regularly scheduled programming. Before we talk stage 10 of the Tour de France, let's hear from Jose Bain. After a well-deserved rest day and some mountain air, we continue en route to a flat finish on stage 10. Albertville is stage town for the sixth time. Three years ago, it was the start of the 11th stage, and that was the day Geraint Thomas took the yellow jersey from Greg van Avermaet and brought it to Paris. After 60 kilometers, we get some great shots of the Chateau de Virieux. It was built back in the 11th century and home to many generations of Virieux. It looks like a medieval fortress and the cannons were a gift from King Louis XIII. In the Second World War, it was a place of resistance against the German occupier. And like in all European countries, Jews were persecuted under the Nazi doctrine. And just like everywhere in Europe, there were good people trying to help and resist. Xavier and Marie-Françoise de Virieux were active members of that resistance. They hid weapons for the French army in their cellar but they also hid two Jewish families, the Schanzers and the Eins. These two families, nine people in total, had fled to France from Belgium when Germany occupied that country in May of 1940. The two families were related, with Bella Schanzer, the wife of Bruno, the sister of Boris Ein. The two men, Boris Schanzer and Boris Ein, were unfortunately arrested and they were killed in Auschwitz. But with help of the Virieux, the two women and the four children did survive the war. Xavier and Marie-Françoise de Virieux were awarded the title Righteous Among the Nations in the Yad Vashem Memorial in Jerusalem. We finish in Valence today and that city is located on the left bank of the Rana River. It's 812 kilometers long and it originates in Switzerland near the Furka Pass. It goes through Lake Geneva and then continues to France, passing Lyon, Valence, Avignon, Arle, and then into the Mediterranean. The local specialty is the Suisse, and it's a short cusp pastry biscuit shaped as a man. The Suisse of Valence is flavored with orange blossom and it contains powder almond and small pieces of candied orange peel. The name, shape, and decoration of this biscuit are inspired by the uniform of the Swiss guards of Pope Pius VI, who died in Valence. The Suisse is traditionally eaten during the Easter holidays and particularly during the festival of Palm Sunday. But maybe today's winner get one to celebrate as well. There probably won't be any time to visit Maison Pique, a free Michelin-starred restaurant of chef Anne-Sophie Pique, one of the very few female chefs in the world to achieve three stars. She was only 37 at the time. Now she owns multiple restaurants around the globe and has the most Michelin stars of any female chef. 
If you want to go, a 10-course meal in the Valence restaurant starts at 320 euro per person. So, bon appétit! Okay, Dane, what is stage 10 of the Tour de France looking like? It's looking like a probable day for the sprinters. It's the first step of the rest is going to be 191k from Albertville to Valence, and there's a fourth category climb in the first third of the stage, and then some uncategorized ascents, kind of. I mean, there's really not a lot here on this profile to to break up the sprint. For me, the, the big question is, how much impetus will there be in the peloton to chase things down now that there's like two sprinters left? So many sprinters have left this race over the last three days that it's basically the Kuna Quickstep for Mark Cavendish and Arkea Samsic for Nasser Buhani, uh, a depleted Alpes and Fenix team working, I guess, for Jasper Philipson, and maybe Bora for, for Peter Sagan. I mean, it, uh, I guess bike exchange maybe for Michael Matthews, but they're going to probably let the other teams do the work. So there's just not nearly the, the number of, of sprint teams that are going to chase down and break away, even on a, a flat day like, like tomorrow's going to be. Uh, so I, I do think there's a chance for one of the upcoming sprint stages that looks like it's a surefire sprint day uh, for, for the break to, for the Brett Van Moore of the day to stay away. Um, we'll, we'll see. I just, it's just not quite as many teams around it to chase things down. But assuming they do chase things down, it should be a sprint. Should we make some picks? Ronan? Who's your pick for tomorrow? Uh, just before we make a pick, just looking at the the profile for tomorrow, uh, and specifically the final kilometer. Uh, expect a CPA protest or uh, <laughs> something ten minutes before the start tomorrow because we have a roundabout at two hundred meters to go. I I actually had to triple, maybe quadruple check this on Google Maps because I couldn't believe I was looking at the right finishing straight. Uh, but basically, they have a, a pretty large roundabout with 200 meters to go that filters the riders into a much narrower single lane. Uh, it's actually, it's a normal-sized road, but there's a, a, a road a traffic island right the way down the final 200 meters then, so it'll be a pretty narrow uh, single vehicle-wide uh, finishing straight uh, off, a, off a roundabout. So, um, yeah, just... You know, we, we spoke quite a bit about crisis early in this tour let's hope we don't see more tomorrow um but we also spoke about how the aso or whoever is designing routes could design routes that have less chance of causing chaos and certainly it looks like this one isn't exactly built with the writers in mind i would say is probably the the best way to to put it um and (gasps) color me shocked certainly um um uh, delighted we didn't see this finish in the opening few days because then it would have been carnage um, and you know perhaps it, it might come down to a breakaway tomorrow and it's not that big a deal but if we've got a bunch of sprint coming in there tomorrow it's just not uh, not an ideal finish for that uh, unless they've gone and wrapped up that whole road traffic island and, and, and made it somewhat wider in the finishing straight but even then we still have a roundabout at 200 meters to go so the riders cannot see the finish much the same as they couldn't see the finish uh, on stage three, was it when we had the big uh, the 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 finish line straight or the finish line crash with with Caleb Ewan? So uh, hopefully uh, we're not talking about that tomorrow night. But not exactly a great course. But to answer your question, um, Mads Pedersen. Hmm. Wow. Mess. Very. 
Very uh, bold choice. Dane, who's your pick? I think Mark Cavendish is going to get one win closer, putting him at 33 uh, and, and further his uh, green jersey lead in the process. It's probably a good pick, and I think I would normally go with you on that one, but I'm going to go Thomas again. Breakaway? I don't know. That's my gut. That's my gut feeling. I just have to clarify one thing. I did say last night that I'm picking Jasper Stuyven for every stage. So So you switched no, 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 no. with his teammate? No, no, he's still my pick for every stage. He will win tomorrow, possibly from the breakaway. But if, if it's a sprint tomorrow, I'm going for Mass Pedersen. All right, all right, cool. One more, one last thing. For our Velo Club members, we have, of course, our Slack channel. And on that Slack... We have a channel dedicated to our Tour de France fantasy competition. Now, for any Velo Club members who have been paying attention to that, uh, we get a daily report on each of the stages from Benjamin Badison. I think that's how you pronounce Benjamin's surname. Apologies if I got that terribly wrong. But basically, Benjamin has the greatest reports on each of the stages. And as part of the fantasy tour de france competition we have a special prize for whoever ends up as this year's lantern rouge and this the reason i'm bringing it up in the podcast is because this is the kind of prize that money cannot buy it's literally this is the kind of prize that money literally cannot buy because for this year's lantern rouge we have a pair of my socks that i wore at the Grand Depart in Brest just last week and actually did so much walking at Tour de France that I wore a hole in one of those pairs of socks. Now, naturally with a hole, a huge hole in the heel of the socks, I thought they were, you know, I thought it was the end of the road for those socks. So I hadn't yet washed them. So these socks are still unwashed from the Grand Depart in Brest with a hole caused by the roads of the Tour de France in the heel of the socks and those socks will go to the lucky slash not so lucky Lantern Rouge in our fantasy Tour de France competition well that's all we got for you today thank you so much for listening to the Cycling Tips podcast and we will be back for stage 10 of the Tour de France and stage 5 of the Giardone and uh, have a great day Mm -hmm.